one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ahí va a llegar Arsenal Ozil, marca Mesut Ozil. Al segundo intento, que volea, que golazo. Con la pierna izquierda, Mesut Ozil. Te puede enamorar, 1-0, tanto de Ozil. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. Not with James from Gunnerblog, who is currently in India or Sri Lanka or somewhere in that region of the world on his honeymoon. Hope he's having a great time. But uh, I'm joined today by my Arsblog News colleague, Andrew Allen. Andrew, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too. Good. Did you have a good night last night? Fantastic. Yeah, I'm kind of... Uh... I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. I'm going to be honest, but I, hopefully we can uh, we can we can get through this together. You, you're in that lovely zone where you're still a little bit pickled from the night before. I've I've still got gin coursing through my veins. Excellent. Yeah, I'm absolutely, definitely, 100% still pissed. Okay, then I would recommend if you've got a beer in the house, uh, it would be a good <laughs> idea to have it by your side because that kind of keeps you on an even keel. That's the important part of this day is ensuring you're on an even keel throughout uh, yeah. throughout New yeah. Year's Day. So um, if you do feel the need to go and grab alcohol at any stage, uh, you know, just go for it. Um, I'll let you know. Do I want to say Happy New Year to everybody, uh, to all of our listeners. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. Hope you had a great night wherever you did, wherever you did it, wherever you spent it, whatever you did. I hope you had a fun time and welcome to 2018. It sounds ridiculous to say we're in 2018, but there you go. So Happy New Year to all of you. Not Happy New Year, though, to Mike Dean. I do not feel favorably disposed towards Mike Dean at all this morning. No. Jesus Christ. I mean, the bloke just... What is it with him? It's like he's, I mean, I swear he's got it in for us. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of clubs around the country that feel the same way, but this guy's a real fucking asshole. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. I, you know, I, I sort of hope that every time he gets out of bed, he's, he steps on an upturned plug. You know that kind of way? Like I want, I want a, a series of really small, irritating things to befall him for the rest of his life. Like every time he takes the bin bag out of the bin, it splits and all the rubbish goes all over the floor. Or yeah, bin juice all over his feet. Exactly, want, bin yeah. juice. And you know, if he has to take a bus or a train, there's somebody on there playing music out of their mobile phone. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I hope that like when he goes to the supermarket, he always forgets something that he really needs and has to go back. Just when he yeah. gets home, he remembers, ah, fuck, I forgot that and I have to go back. And I hope that every time he buys a box of cereal, there's no cereal. It's just the dust in the bottom <laughs> of the cereal bag. I hope it's I hope it's all just dust. And I hope that like when he's alone in his house contemplating his thoughts, his Mike Dean thoughts, whatever the fuck goes on in, in that head of his, I hope he becomes hyper aware of a, of a low level sound, like a <laughs> sort of just there in the background that he can never, ever find the source of, but it's always there. And because he knows it's always there, he can't ever not hear it. 
I hope those kind of things happen to Mike Dean. I don't want to wish him like truly ill will, like I've seen some people <laughs> doing on Twitter. Uh, some people were wishing a lot of a lot of bad things to happen to him. I'm not that kind of a guy. I don't condone those kind of violent thoughts. But just that really low level irritation all the time for the rest of his days. I think he deserves it. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I personally, I'd just be happy if he like bashes his shin against his coffee table or something today. That yeah. would do it for me. Like a nice big bruise right across the shin bone, yeah, which is going to really bug him all day. And also, I'd yeah. I mean, oh, fuck, yeah. That, fuck that guy. Seriously, <laughs> that was just such a fucking annoying decision. I mean, what a way to end the year. For us. Yeah. I mean, that just really, really annoyed me. I think it really annoyed everybody, um, you know, because there's this sort of weird thing going on, isn't there, when we talk about Mike Dean and we talk about that decision where, you know, you, you people say, well, you know, Mike Dean, it was a terrible decision, but, like, if we didn't play so shit, then, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about what Mike Dean did. And, you know, you can be, you can be in both camps here. You can, yeah. you can think that we played poorly, which we did, but also think that Mike Dean made a terrible mistake and made a terrible decision and gave them a penalty, which was never a penalty. You can, you can exist in both camps. It's like that Chris Rock sketch. You don't have to be one thing. You can be two, you you can be somewhere in the middle, you know? I think, I think the question was posed to Wenger actually about that. You know, they, they asked him at the end of the game, you know, does, does the fact that the decision went against you make up for the fact that your team was poor? And he basically went, well, look, you can be responsible for your own performance to a point, but if in, you know, with three minutes going or to go, the referee decides to make a decision like that, that you could do nothing about them. You know, what the hell can you do? Yep. Yep. He was just, he was exasperated. I mean, to the point where he wants to say everything about it, but refuses to say anything because he knows that there's nothing that will solve this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did make some points about referees and the quality of referees and, and all those kind of things, which I think is part of a wider discussion. And people will say, well, look, that's uh that's a manager whose team has dropped two points that they shouldn't have dropped against a team they should have beaten, the bottom of the league team who are, are, haven't won since August. And, you know, that's fair. Again, you can have perspective on that and say, yeah, that is perhaps a bit of a distraction, but it's also perhaps a discussion that that, that should be had because the quality of refereeing, and I don't just mean decisions like the ones that we saw uh, yesterday um, from Mike Dean. You know, you think back to a couple of weeks ago when the two Tottenham players put in leg-breaking tackles on, on Manchester City players and got away with yellow cards. And now there was another tackle by, who was it, Jason Punchin on, on Kevin De Bruyne the other day. Yeah, And I don't want to sound like any kind of conspiracy theory, theorist, and I'm not really, but I think it was easier for the media to highlight the nastiness of the Punchin challenge because he is not an England international. There's that yeah, sort of yeah. protectivism that goes on in, in sections of the media where they're not going to criticize Harry Kane and they're not going to criticize Delhi Alley or make them figureheads of a campaign. You know, I mean, we should be doing what everything we can to stamp out dangerous, nasty tackling. But because it was a, an easier guy to pick on, they've gone for it this time, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it was all the more galling because nobody mentioned the fact that Kane should have been banned for the two games where he suddenly become twenty, you know, seventeen's greatest ever goal scorer under the sun, you know, this type of thing. I was, you know, it's ridiculous, really. But yeah, well, I mean, what can you do at this point? I mean, Wenger, twenty-one years at Arsenal, is pulling his hair out over the same things that he was, you know, at the start of his reign. And he, he's right. I mean, he brought up the fact that he he kind of campaigned David Dino. I think was at the FA at the time to get the referees to turn professional, which he did. But he's been banging on about the fact that the 
there's been no improvement in the standards since. Yeah, I mean, I get um, that, but is that not a thing that 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 all managers and all clubs have to deal with? Playing devil's advocate here, if the quality of refereeing is low, is it not a problem for every team and every manager? Yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. No, I mean, no, no. If, yeah. if, if the players are getting better and the game as a whole is improving and they're, they're making leaps, you know, strides across all manner of different areas of the game. I mean, what must be particularly frustrating, I think, for a manager like Wenger and a lot of the managers these days is this whole idea of marginal gains. Yeah. And you can, you can spend all of that time on the training ground trying to find the extra percent here and there in a the performance. But at the end of the day if it just comes down to some bloke's judgment and he's off his game that day and he makes a decision like Dean did yesterday, that, that can win and lose your title. I mean, it's not going to do that for us no. and it probably won't do it for anybody else this season because City are so far ahead, but it's that type of thing that can win and, and lose you a title. And, you know, the confidence can go, a team can just be, you know, completely mm. knocked off their stride. Yeah. I mean, look, I think back as well to the, to the game against West Brom at home. And um, we talk about quality of refereeing. And on that day, I don't really remember too many Arsenal fans complaining about the quality of refereeing when I think it was Mustafi uh, chopped down one of their players in the box. It was Robert Madley was the referee that day. And Mustafi yeah, went yeah. sliding in. It was the most stonewall penalty that you will ever, ever see. And we got a decision that went for us on the day and nobody you know and I'll hold my hands up here because it's part of what we do it's part of what we do as football fans the cognitive dissonance in a way that you're mm. you're quite happy to ignore bad refereeing when it's when it's in your favor of course because it's beneficial for your team um so you know there's the swings and roundabouts argument as well that what goes around comes around and I'm not a proponent of these things even them out across the season kind of thing but you know sometimes they go for you sometimes they don't so if you're if you're going to campaign against poor refereeing, refereeing should you not also highlight those things if you're a manager if that's you're, you, you I mean you can't expect any manager to do it but look if you want to be taken perhaps a bit more seriously I don't know it's a difficult yeah. one I mean I, I definitely get the feeling that you pick and choose when you have your you know you, you, you have your battles as a manager and Vengo kind of sits on some of these things for quite a while and obviously when a result goes badly he knows that that's when he's going to get the most press about something and he uses them sometimes as a deflection tactic but I thought what was interesting yesterday that if anything as he was about the Dean decision he also was desperate to bring up that whole scheduling of the fixtures thing yeah and he really 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 pressed that home and it kind of felt to me like he quite often has a kind of list of things he'd quite like to bring up and whenever it suits him, he'll decide to kind of push one in particular. Well, what do you um, make of that one then? Because he was talking about how West Brom were given, they had two more days rest before this particular game. And, you know, when you, when you look at what he says and step back from it, objectively, of course, it makes a lot of sense that there should be as much as possible an even playing field when teams are, are playing each other in the Premier League and not just for Arsenal, for all teams, that there should be perhaps, if you're playing West Brom, you should have four days rest. They should have four days rest. I know it can't quite work like that, but it seems a not unreasonable thing to point out. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, to me, it feels like he's, he's he's looking at the TV companies. He knows that obviously the game is, is flush with money and that the Cubs are kind of at the, the, the whim of, of the TV companies now when they pick the games. But it doesn't feel like the TV companies are really working... Uh, on a sporting level, this is all about mm. the practicalities of showing the best games at the most kind of uh, the best times for the global audience, not just the British audience. And 
I mean, he's right. I mean, I don't know how much they, they, they sit down and think to themselves, okay, right, if they're doing it on a month-by-month basis, it feels to me like they're just picking the odd game and moving it back 24 hours and thinking nothing of it. But it does make a difference, surely. I mean, you've got a team of 23 players, and if a guy has, you know, 72 hours rest as opposed to, you know, 48, it's going to make a massive difference over the course of a season, especially in those last 10, 15 minutes when, you know, you're, you're chasing a game. I mean, that's when all the action happened yesterday in the last 10 minutes, for mm. example. Um, I, I I don't know. I mean, it feels to me like there there should be some kind of overriding ruling by the Premier League that enforces at least an attempt to try and make the uh, the rest times the same. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not been something that I've thought about too often because you, you don't complain about it when you've won. Um, no, but, no. I, I mean, no, I, yeah. I mean, what, what I was going to say was that, you know, what, one easy way of doing it would be to remove one of the games from the festive schedule because there's too many games at this hmm. time of the year. So you remove one game, it allows you to space things out properly and give teams the, the kind of rest that they need. And I think, but you know, our Arsenal's performance was poor. It was informed by uh, playing only three days previously. Well, you the know. thing is, is I, I look at our schedule and I thought, actually, our Christmas schedule has been pretty kind this year. You know, we've actually, because of the way that they ended up having to abandon having the Liverpool game on the 24th, mm. we ended up with an extra sort of day and a bit of rest ahead of the Crystal Palace game. Um, but what he seems to really have a bugbear about is the fact that both teams don't have the same amount of rest. It's not so much that the game, I mean, like you said yesterday, he said, I don't mind if we play every single day but so long as the teams that we play are also playing every single day, that's where he's getting at. It's not so much that he feels that the games are coming too regularly. It's more that, you know, both teams aren't preparing for them on the same platform, on the same level, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, but look, that that's fine. And that that's, uh, I think it's a, a nice idea that every team should have the same amount of rest. It would be a great way to ensure that the quality of games is not affected as much as it has been. Because I think, you know, w- when teams are tired, they're not able to play football as well as they can. And I'm not saying uh, that as an excuse for Arsenal's performance against West Brom, but it's true yeah. for all teams. On the other hand, though, the, the, the flip side of that is that not everyone's aware of what the schedule is like. Everyone is aware of what the demands are. And it's mm. up to the managers, it's up to the clubs to deal with those. So if there, were, if there was an issue of fatigue with Arsenal, if Arsene Wenger in his post-match interview is indicating that his team were not able to play as well as they might have done because they only had three days rest. Is it not incumbent on him to find a solution by perhaps rotating his squad a little more, adding some freshness to the team? Because all he did was change one player uh, from mm-hmm. the team uh, that played Crystal Palace, and that was Alex Iwobi in for, for uh, Mesut Ozil, who was out injured. Now, I know we're not necessarily replete with great options, but when you've got Welbeck on the bench, you've got uh, you've got Walcott on the bench who you don't seem willing to use, you've got Maitland-Niles on the bench, someone you've introduced into the first team, you've got, for example, El Elneny, you know, a mm-hmm. solid enough player. You know, there are ways of offsetting some of that fatigue, and that's something that he has to... He can control that. You know, he can't control referees, but he can control that side of things. So that's that's what people would counter that argument with, I'd say. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. Look, I think, I think he has a very good point to make about the rest periods being similar for each club. That's fine. He doesn't really have an excuse this season as to Arsenal being fatigued, given that he has split his squad in two um, across three different competitions so yeah. far and has had 
copious opportunities to, to, to rest players. I mean, I think back to that Huddersfield game when he could have rested Koscielny and he didn't and he threw him in there and then suddenly a couple of days later, Koscielny's kind of struggling with his Achilles problem again. Yeah. I mean, this, this year, what we all hoped was that the second string would push the first string to kind of improve themselves. And actually what's happened is you've seen certain players in, in positions across the pitch looking very, very comfortable, safe in the knowledge that they are the first pick and that actually, no matter what happens in the reserve games, I say the reserve games, the second string games in the Carabao Cup and the Europa League, that it, it's not making too much difference. I mean, pretty much Giroud was the only one who ever really pressed for a kind of, you know, a likely uh, opportunity in the first team. But across the, Wilshire? the rest of the team... Jack Wilshire? Yeah, but I mean, I, Wilshire's obviously massively benefited from from Ramsey being injured. Mm. And I'll be, I'll be curious to see what happens when, when Ramsey comes back because he should be back in the next week or so, whether whether Wilshire keeps his place. I mean, I personally thought that Wilshire, he's, he's, he's looked very, very good so far, to be honest. I mean, he's, he's, he's got that burst of pace. But yeah. I, I have also thought to myself, he's starting to look a little bit leggy, especially going into those last 15, 20 minutes of games. I don't think he's covering the ground in the way that he, he used to. Um, <clears throat> but... There's definitely a spark there with Jack. There is, isn't the there? Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you could see that. Yeah, I know. No, I know your point um, about the the rest of them. They're, they've they've sort of established themselves as second string players rather than pushed for first team opportunities. Um, but look, let, let's talk a little bit, bit about the performance overall. We can come to the penalty decision in in a minute or two. Mm. I mean, the team selection with Ozil out, Iwobi in seemed. Seemed I mean, it, like the the natural way that he was going to do it, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I I didn't think he was quite as bad as people were saying, but I think when it comes to the final third, Alex Iwobi has some issues with his decision making in terms of uh, how he uses the ball and the way he uses the ball. Um, he, yeah. he, he often sees things, but doesn't doesn't really have the ability to make the pass. I mean, it's, it's 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 not a great state of affairs when someone who's a, a creative force like that, and you know, he's he's brilliant. That first touch he has, and he can get out of a, a space quite nicely. But actually, when it comes to making the decisive pass, he's just not there. And it's those guys like Özil who, when they do do it, you suddenly realise how much you miss them when they're not on the pitch. And I I felt a bit for for Iwobi yesterday because it. it he kept coming in narrow, but his space was being taken up by Alexis as well. And what you ended up with mm. was two players going for the ball in similar areas, but effectively taking each other out of the game when the other one was on the ball. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I like Iwobi, but he, he's starting to remind me a bit of Walcott, which is when he has too much time to think about stuff, he cocks it up. Yeah. And that, that's particularly the case with his shooting. I mean, you saw that there was that one chance in the first half where he kind of span his man and, you know, the, he opened up his body and he looked like he was going to curl it in the top corner and he put it over. Mm. And there was nothing surprising about that. You know, I looked at it away. I mean, I've, I've always thought he's a, he's not a finisher. Um, the second shot that he had, which forced Foster into a save and he kind of fumbled it around the post. It wasn't a great shot. It looked like it was a much closer chance because of Foster's bad keeping. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's an interesting one, Iwobi, because when he first came into the team, he had some nice combinations, particularly with Welbeck, I remember. He used to kind of work nicely down the left and he used to kind of um, be quite nice at feeding the ball down the line. I'm just not seeing it at the moment. Yeah. And, it, you know, when Ozil comes back into the team, you know that Iwobi's going to drop out. I don't really see Iwobi getting into the team when Ozil's there at the moment. So 
his opportunities are going to be stuck with the, the second string. And again, we go back to that problem about the second string not really you mm. know, doing much. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that struck me from yesterday was our inability to really provide any service to Alexandre Lacazette. Uh, I think that's becoming a more pressing issue. Uh, you know, the, the last couple of games, he's had some chances which he more or less created by himself. He had one yesterday, which was, again, you talk about fine margins. It was a great little interplay, and he took the ball into the box, moved it onto his left foot, and the keeper saved with his foot. It was one of those that could just as easily have gone through the keeper's legs, um, mm. and those are, the, those are the fine margins. But beyond that, we're really not finding a way to provide him with the chances inside the penalty box that he really needs, because I think once you get him into those positions, his finishing is very good. It's just that the team seems to lack the creativity that it requires. You know, Alexis, um, Arsene Wenger spoke about him in the last couple of weeks and said, look, I, I need him higher up the pitch. I don't want him to drop as deep. But yesterday without Ozil, he's got that responsibility. Perhaps he feels that responsibility to take over the creative mantle and was mm -hmm. dropping really deep. There were a number of times where he, he had the ball out on that right-hand side, and if Aaron Ramsey had been in the team, you knew what kind of pass he was going to make. There was one where he had it, and when he had to turn back and give the ball away, he was gesturing. He was gesturing. I don't know who it was, but, you know, make that run. Make the run inside uh, mm. be, that he could curl that little pass into. But, you know, once we got to the final third, we had no real invention, no way of breaking them down. Lots of tippy-tappy stuff around the box, and if it comes off great but beyond that we just didn't have any attacking ideas and that has been a problem not just against West Brom not just because we're tired not just because we played three days ago that is a problem of this team and this setup I don't know how we fix that I mean it's the, the one thing I look at Lacazette and he's been doing it since he joined is that he, he he makes a lot of runs and the ball never goes early enough to him and he puts his arm up and he's always calling for the ball. And, you know, some of that's, you know, a deflection tactic. He's trying to kind of drag a man one way. He's not necessarily always expecting the ball. But what's remarkable for a guy like that is that it feels like we're asking him to just play with his back to the defenders. And we play like, the ball. Like Giroud. Like Giroud. Yeah. We yeah. basically asked him to play like Giroud. And he's a completely different player to Giroud. I mean, he's he's his strength is improving. I mean, you can see that because, you know, these half chances are being created, but you see Sanchez pick the ball up deep and his aim to, is to combine with Wilshire or Iwobi, pass the ball inside, but basically to get it to Lacazette and then pick it up again. It's a constant kind of, he's the guy who plays the mm. one, two. And when teams are sitting so deep as West Brom was just another example of a team sitting very deep against us, making those passes is almost impossible when you're surrounded by eight players. Yeah. And it just seems bizarre that we would ask a guy, we spend all of that money on a guy who obviously has exceptional finishing capabilities and then try and get him to play in a way, which is you're the link man. Yeah. You'll set, you'll set everybody else up. It's, it's, it's beyond me. I just, I'm, you know, check said something recently. He said, we're not getting the best out of him. And you have to say it feels that way. But I don't, I don't know how you, you change the setup of the team to make Lacazette the focal point. But, you know, if Sanchez is going to go and Ozil is potentially going to go, we're going to have to find a way to make the best of the best players that we have. And he's one of them, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it requires a different kind of player, perhaps, to, to get him that kind of service. Uh, a wide player who will perhaps get to the byline, somebody who can take on defenders. I mean, I think that's part of what we've been missing. Mm. Um Certainly in this system, you know, when, when you play wingbacks, there's such responsibility on them to get up and down um, that I think we, we, 
we can see how they could attack in those in those zones, but they they just tend not to have uh, the support that they need to get into the attacking zones as often as they should, and we can't get the. Uh, the deliveries into into Lacazette, but look, we got a goal very late on, a free kick. It was, it felt like the only way we were really going to score was from a set piece. Mm-hmm. I was looking for an Alexis, you know, a, a lovely little curler, but as it was, it was a, a fairly shit goal to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, just deflected in off James McLean. But at that point, you think, okay, we've done enough. We've got the goal. That's what we need. West Brom didn't look at all threatening. Um. Then the penalty decision, and uh, you know, I it was just infuriating, really, because it felt you know it felt like an absolute gift from Mike Dean to West Brom. That's all it felt like to me. And uh, can you see? I mean, I've seen people say, "Oh, I can see why it was given." Can you? No, no. I mean, two things really stood out for me. One, Gibbs did not appeal for the for the for the handball. Right? I mean, he was just like. He put his hand up thinking it was going to be a corner. Mm. I mean, that's the guy who's literally from a yard away kicked the ball against Chambers' hand. And I know he was an ex-Arsenal player. And I'm, you know, I don't know if anything has to do with it. You know, that whole thing has anything to do with it. But no. he did not appeal, right? That's one thing. The second thing was ex-West Bromwich Albion Liam Bridgewell on Sky Sports after the show, a bloke who looks ridiculously cocky wearing some terrible, you know, suit thing. He... <laughs> Uh, he, I, after the I game, like that. Like, his, I like that it was his suit that annoyed you. Oh yeah, he looked like <laughs> he looked like he'd got me. You know, he looked like I'd bought a mobile phone off him or something. Once before. <laughs> anyway, um, he even he was chuckling about how ridiculous it was. I mean, and that's he's just, oh, he's just baffled. And the thing with Dean was that there was no doubt in his mind. He has this kind of arrogant look in his face, which is just like, I've made my decision and absolutely no way. It doesn't matter. And this is mm. what really annoyed Czech, wasn't it? It was the fact that there was no explanation for any of this. It was, it's my way. It's done. Anybody who complains about this is going to get booked now. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought that, that, that arrogance really, really grates with people, not just fans, but you could see it with the players as mm. well. I think the Czech's interview on Sky afterwards, Um, you know, he's a very, yeah. uh, very, calm, measured guy, but you could see he was really furious. You know, he went to the referee and asked him for an explanation, didn't curse or anything like that, and ended up getting a yellow card. And somebody posted a a little clip of Mike Dean and Arsene Wenger on the sideline, and Mm. Wenger's trying to talk to him, and Dean just keeps repeating, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking at him. Like, I don't know how you, you resist the temptation to just give that guy a slap across the head because he must be the most infuriating uh, official uh, to deal with because, because of that arrogance um, that, that he displays. There's a bit of me that wonders whether it's a defense mechanism, almost that he's realized he's probably made a mistake and he's decided the only way he can do it double is down, to double it, down style, it, style it out by being this kind of teacher figure who's decided that he's just going to tell the kids off no matter what, even if he's wrong. Yeah. Well, look, you know, we can't, uh, again, I'm not I'm not into the, the idea of a refereeing conspiracy. I think it was just a bad decision. I think it was a, yeah. a really poor decision from a referee who is prone to them. And because of the because of the way he be, behaves and comports himself, you know, those those decisions are compounded. They make people even more angry because of the way that he behaves. You know, so we can't control that. What we can control is our own performance. And what we can control is the way that we play, the way that we the way that we manage a game. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the decision to replace Lauren Koscielny with Per Mertesacker. That that to me felt like a really 
cautious, almost timid decision against a team that's bottom of the league, against a team that really wasn't causing us any problems in a game where we needed to change something in order to get the goal that we needed to win the game. I, I'm, I think there's room for discussion and criticism here of that particular decision, not because Mertesacker did anything wrong. He didn't really have very much to do, but because we could have gone for it, it felt an unvenger-like substitution for me from a manager who is very often seen as someone who who throws on all his attacking options in order to get the goals that he needs. This was a chance to reconfigure his team, to put an extra man further up the pitch, to uh, you know use a back four. Uh, with the players that we had in there. He's, he's happy enough to use Maitland-Niles as a left-back against Liverpool. Just stick mm. him there against uh, West Brom for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever it was. You know, he had Welbeck there, could have added an extra man up front, could have brought Walcott on. I think we might get into a discussion about Walcott in a bit. But, you know, what, what did you make of that decision? Because that, to me, felt like a moment where we could have ha- had a real impact on the game but chose not to. I mean, it, it was very strange because he's been very reticent to use pair this season unless absolutely necessary or in the second string um you know it's not like he's had a particularly good games recently i mean against southampton when he made those mistakes in the first five minutes mm. it kind of felt like it was a kind of career-ending performance but there he was back in the team again i i i, I thought it was very very odd i i was genuinely thought he'd try and throw on two strikers because he's done that so many times this season you know he's had no problems with chucking in the 3-5-2 and going back to 4-4-2 or 4-3-3. Um, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. Perhaps he was slightly worried about uh, Maitland-Niles being on the left, having come on as a substitute. Maybe he just didn't particularly trust Chambers to see out the game. I mean, personally, I thought Chambers, up until the the, the handball, and it wasn't his fault, obviously, was, 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 was perfectly capable of dealing with whatever was thrown at him yesterday. Um it was a it was a really really odd one. I can't for the life of me figure out why he felt that we would sort of try and see out a game because we were you know we were still chasing the win. Obviously, I mean, um, I don't know. I don't. It, it, it smacked of um, maybe not trusting. Maybe he didn't want to put Walker on. Maybe that was the you know maybe there's something in that. Yeah, his other options on the bench. El Nenny, I don't think he particularly fancied to change the game. Um, yeah, I mean, Wal- just Walcott, a lack of options. Yeah, really. I mean, Walcott and Welbeck were the two, and and. Uh, Walcott was a guy who who probably could have come on in this game and, and I won't say made a huge difference, but just give us that something a little bit different uh, mm. on the right-hand side. You know, somebody who's got a bit of pace, and I know that they were sitting deep, but, you know, he has made an impact before. I wonder if the situation surrounding him and the rumoured uh, departure has some impact on whether or not we're prepared to use him in games, and if so, why is he even on the bench? Well, that's the big question, right? Why is he on? If, if you're not going to use him, or if there is a background reason, like he might be leaving, and therefore you're kind of reticent to sort of, you know, sacrifice, it, you know, if he gets injured or something, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, he sh- I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have him on the bench if that's the case. I, I guess at the same time, you know, options are a little thin on the ground at the moment with 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 Giroud being injured and Ramsey being injured and Kazola being out, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just feel with Theo that he has absolutely no faith in Walcott right now to 
you know, he's, he's someone who he has no qualms about leaving on the bench or leaving out of the squad altogether. It's almost as if it's an easy decision for mm. Wenger and he knows that he won't have to take the hassle of a player complaining too much because it just doesn't strike me that Walcott's complaining about his circumstances at the moment. Um, but, I mean, going back to the Mertesacker decision, I just can't see... There was no point in the game when I felt that Arsenal were particularly under the cosh, you know, even from the set pieces yesterday, West Brom didn't look particularly dangerous. And, you know, I, mean, I guess they've had a change of manager and they're yeah. no longer focusing on it like Poolish used to. But um, yeah, it just, it was very odd. I mean, I'm slightly worried about Welbeck because again, he came on and it didn't really feel like, you know, kind of his legs don't always look like they're attached to the top part of his body. You know, he's kind of <laughs> <laughs> slightly ungainly um, for all the pace and the muscle that he has. I just, Again, I'm looking at a player who feels like his confidence has dropped a little bit, and obviously yeah. that comes with injuries taking their toll on him, knocking him off his stride. But yeah, it's it's. I didn't really feel like we had match winners on the bench yesterday. No, no, that's true. You know, Welbeck has really struggled since uh, since coming back from injury, and since he's become a substitute, uh, he, he really hasn't made an impact any of the times that he's been called into action, which is you know obviously a bit of a shame. If he's mm. not ready to use Walcott, well, then we really need to address that kind of situation. Just very quickly, though, so wrapping up this part of the show, overall, uh, another poor display from us away from home. Uh, you know, we've been really poor most of the season. Um and we look like a team that's struggling for ideas. It's just boring, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's, same perform because you can talk about fatigue. You can talk about playing three days ago. You can talk about Mike Dean. You can talk about terrible decisions. You can feel aggrieved at having uh, two points taken away because of that terrible decision. But you can't ignore that this performance is not anything out of the ordinary. This appears to be much closer to the norm than what we would like to see. Um, from from this team, I, I don't look forward to watching the matches anymore. I mean, I have a certain level of excitement, but it's always tinged with this sense that I'm about to watch the same game, and it, it it's sad because I think actually, if you you know, if you sat down with Arsene Wenger and you said, you know what, Arsene, it's not the losing, it's not the drawing, it's not. It's not that. It's, you're a guy who's prided himself on creating exciting teams. You want your teams to entertain supporters. And what we're getting these days is boring. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be anything that you can do to change that because it doesn't matter who the players are. Even when you change the full 11 and suddenly we're in the Carabao Cup, the same players play the same game, or sorry, different players play the same game. And it's... It's just every team knows how to play against us. Every team will sit back and hope that they can just catch us on the break. And if they do that, then they suddenly kind of go at us for five, ten minutes. We panic. We start to make individual mistakes. Mm. And I, I, it's it's just it's just sad to watch at the moment. Really, it just feels a bit kind of end of days stuff. Really, we're just sort of slowly trudging towards the end of an era. Yes, and it's everybody sort of sees it. It feels like maybe some of the players know it as well. Yeah. And, you know, you, when you've got other players in the squad, you know, you, when your best players in the squad are the ones who are about to leave, that's not good. That no. can't be good for team morale. No. Um, and I, I'm not buying into the whole, you know, not celebrating with Sanchez thing that came up earlier in the week, but, um, you know, he might not be popular, but so what, but the, back, the fact is our best players 
are going to leave and they're probably going to leave because we're not that good yeah. and they don't really see us as being a, a viable option to, to win major trophies. I don't start the season these days and think Arsenal are going to win the league. I think, you know, we might win the FA Cup. Fantastic. I yeah. love the FA Cup, but it's just, it's not, it's not good enough. No, no, um, it's not. Uh, we do have Chelsea on Wednesday. Do you fancy us to find a performance? I mean, do you want to go get a drink before you answer this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should start drinking now for the Chelsea game. Uh, it, it, to me, it feels like if we start well, we might deliver a performance that we did against Spurs. If we start badly, we could end up with a United result. Mm. And I have absolutely no idea how that first fifteen minutes is going to go, but I'm almost certain that it'll def- it'll decide the game. Right, and you know. We, we, I can't remember who it was. I think it may have been Tim Stillman, actually. He said that Arsenal have always thrived on chaos football. And it always feels like once we're a couple of goals down, we start to play with a bit more freedom. And it's partly because other teams are sort of deciding that they, you know, they're just going to sit back a little bit and we're just going hell for leather at them. But I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't really expect Chelsea are a bit of a plodding side this season. I don't look at them and think they're much of a threat, but at the same time, I think they could easily walk away with a two nil win just by being rather disciplined or more disciplined than us. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit worried about the injury situation because I think, you know, if Koscielny's out, that could, really dictate the formation of the team. Mm. Um, I think Ramsey probably won't make it. I think Wilshire's starting to look a little bit tired, potentially. You know, no Giroud off the bench. He's always a, a nice option. That's not going to happen. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough to get a result against them, I think. Mm. And we really need one because, the, the, you know, we haven't done well over the Christmas period and there's a, there's a gap starting to open up. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those uh, that we... We could really do with three points from. We need a a Tottenham-style performance. But look, uh, we might have a question or two about that in the next part of the show. So for now, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with part two, your questions and more right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is the part of the show where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at A Allen Sport and at Arsblog. That was difficult for me because I was immediately thinking of uh, Gunner Blog there. Um, <laughs> not that I'm pining. I just, you know, it's just habit. It's uh, okay. You can pine. Oh, I mean, he's gone now. He's married, so you're never going to get it. All right. Well, okay. I'll face <laughs> up to that sooner or later. Uh, also on the Arsblog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. So we've got lots of questions about uh, asking why Mike Dean is this or that or why is he such a... 
you know, a terrible person. Um, we don't have the answers to that, unfortunately. We can't see inside his head, but I just reiterate what I said at the start of the show, that I hope, you know, terrible things befall him at all times. That's it. I hope his headphones never untangle. That's the worst thing I can think of right now. I hope he never gets a USB stick in correct first time. <laughs> Does anybody? Does anybody? <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, uh, let's get on with questions, shall we? Do you want to start or will I start? Uh, I've got one. I see. Okay. Uh, this one's from James Carter 100, at James Carter 100. And he asks, is there any centre-half at Arsenal who is a safe bet to be at the club next season? Yeah. I think uh, Chambers... Mustafi, Holding, um, I think those three definitely will. Koscielny probably too. Um, I have a question about Koscielny, so we might touch on that. But obviously, uh, Mertesacker's retiring. He's going to go at the, at the end of the season and take over the academy. Uh, Monreal, you know, he's a guy who is a, a centre-half in a back three, not really a centre-half in a back four for me. Koscielny, I think we might get on to that uh, Koscielny question. But I think the three young guys... Uh, holding Chambers and Mustafi will all still be there unless something drastic happens along the way. Uh, but I think it's clear that it's an area that we really need to be paying attention to. Wasn't there a, um, a story last week about how Sven Mislintat has been recommending a, a centre-half, I can't remember his name, or where he plays, or uh, <laughs> what country it's in, or what team he plays for, or anything like that. But apparently he's the guy that we're going to be after. I think his surname begins with D. That's all I can think of. Well, I, I should Google <laughs> this. this, this oh, oh, oh. Whoa. Whoa. What the What's fuck? What the hell happened there? Yeah. Wow. 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 Ooh, this is freaky. Okay, sorry about that. Um, sure. Is that uh, you, though? It's not me. No, it's, it's definitely at my end. Um, Sven Mislintat recommends center half. That should Google, Google should be our friend here. Um, no, no, <laughs> nothing. We didn't cover it on Arsenal News. No, we didn't cover it on our blog news at all. So anyway, I mean, maybe I was just it. dreaming. I could have just been dreaming, but I think it is an area oh, no, we need to. I, I found it. Oh, you found it. You are the yeah. king of Google. Who is it? It's Main, main, main defender Abdu Diallo. That's the guy. That's that's yeah. the guy. I, I knew I wasn't making things up or just imagining it. I'm going to have to close this web page before it plays some awful web video. Right. Live. So what? Abdu Miallo. Abdu Diallo. Okay. Um. All right. He's French. He's 21. Excellent. He's, he's already. He's an Arsenal player. Yeah. Perfect. He's one meter eighty-seven. Um, and hey, check this out. He spent some of his youth career at Tour, which is a ah. club that Lauren Koscielny also uh, yeah, played yeah. for. And he also uh, spent some time at Monaco. I um, see. Yeah. And he's so also he moved, he moved to Monaco only in the summer. In, sorry, to, to Mainz only in the summer. So he's actually only been there for six months. Yeah. He's also spent some time at my, uh, my favorite Belgian club, Zulte Waregem. <laughs> I, I just like the name. I don't really have a favorite Belgian club. But anyway, he's uh, he's French of Senegalese descent, and maybe he's the guy that's going to come in. But yeah, we, we need a signing there for sure. We need to like rejig the, uh, the age profile of our central defenders, which is why 
Slip Slip Slippy, who is at Slip Slip Slippy, which is handy. Um, he wants to know the performance and the decline of Koscielny. It would be good to hear some serious, unbiased discussion on this. Thanks. What What do you think is going on with Koscielny? He's not really been at the races for the last couple of months, I felt. I mean, he, he has... What's been more disturbing is... is, is, is 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 the individual errors that have been creeping into his game. You know, I think particularly back mm. to the to the West Ham game where he made that ridiculous decision to pass across the box in the last minute, which then freaked everybody else out. And uh Hernandez nearly scored, didn't he? I mean yeah. that one sticks out. But there have been a few occasions recently where I've just thought he's not You've got to you've got to look at that injury that he's nursing and think if that's playing at the back of his mind, if he's even lost a tiny bit of pace, if he's having to sort of overthink things at all, mm. that's gonna that's gonna start to to make a make a difference over the course of ninety minutes. Um, what was really frustrating, and I brought it up earlier, was it was why we're not giving him a rest occasionally. Yeah. You know, I feel like you could get the best out of Koscielny over the course of a season if you use him properly, but we, we seem quite insistent on playing him every game, no matter what, if we can. And, um, you know, that's probably going to piss off, piss off uh, Didier Deschamps as well, because Koscielny's looking at the World Cup and desperately hoping he'll be a main part of the French squad as well. I I, I worry because it's the first time I think I've looked at Koscielny and, since he started and thought, oh God, you know, maybe he's not going to cut it again next year. Mm. Um, but I mean, I think he's also suffering a little bit from the fact that he never seems to know who the hell he's going to be playing alongside. And um, yeah. we've changed that defense so often recently. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's, the, when you get to a certain age as a center half, you, your game adapts because you're not as quick as you used to be. And I think part of Cassiani's game has been based on his pace and his aggression you know, getting there first, nicking the ball uh, high yeah, up the yeah. pitch, doing kind of what Monreal does very well when he plays at centre half is is making those interceptions. I think perhaps the injury is having an effect on his pace, mm. uh, his ability to uh, to perhaps push himself physically, and also the fact that he is 32, perhaps just slowing down very slightly, and he might be finding it difficult to adapt his game to uh, to that of a more seasoned central defender like I've been surprised that that uh, you know he hasn't been the the central man in that um, back three as much because of those reasons but obviously he wants to play Mustafi there um, I think he thinks Mustafi is a better passer of the ball and that central one seems to have a lot mm, more of the ball. I'm not sure Mustafi is that much better. No, I don't think ball. he is, but I, I think he seems more willing to allow Mustafi to be the, the playmaker. I mean, Mustafi certainly seems to think he's more of a playmaker because he <laughs> quite often tries to sort of take control of the ball and, and push forward and make long yeah. passes and all the rest of it. Not often with success, I might add. But um, no, I think it's interesting what you say about, you know, he, you know, Koscielny used to, you know, he was always the guy who tried to nip in first. And obviously we've got two players in, in Monreal and Mustafi who do that. And I guess he's being asked to play the Mertesacker role a bit more, which is sit back, read the game. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe he's not, he's just not dealing with that so well. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you're right though, as well, that if we do want to get the best of Lauren Koscielny for whatever years are left in his career, however long it might be, we need to manage him better. We need to be more careful with how much football he plays. And we need to accept that he is probably not at this point uh, a guy who can play three games a week for two or three weeks at a time. He needs, yeah. 
he needs some time out of the team. Just while we're on um, defensive uh, issues, uh, a question from Taz Gunner, who is, let me just grab this up here. He is at Taznimur underscore LW. And he wants to know, is Kolasinac overrated if we put away our first season at the club glasses? Uh, and if he delivers more per performances, should we install uh, Monreal at left back again or go with uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles? I guess it's just an overall view of, of what you think Kolasinac has, uh, has delivered so far. Oh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because... I mean, I, I, I jokingly made the comparison with Andre Santos when Kalasnac was dropped from the side. I mean, both quite hefty guys. Yeah. Um, you know, prefer to kind of go forward rather than say sit back or or, or, or when they're faced with a pacey player, they don't seem to enjoy that too much. Um, I think his combination play. He's almost. He's almost like a kind of left midfielder, isn't he? I mean, he's rather than a than a left back. But what I find really interesting is that we signed him on a free, which meant that we'd obviously done a fair bit of scouting. This was not some kind of trolley dash kind of acquisition. This was a guy we'd been looking for a while. We did the business early. We obviously had an idea of where we might want to play him. And it feels to me that Wenger's just not been wholly convinced. I mean, I think he likes his physical power. And I think he's a player who's done much better in home games than he has away. Um, I don't know. I mean, I you know, I I love Nacho Monreal, but Wenger is now obviously thinks he's found himself a centre back there, and I think he could probably play Monreal there for the next few years. Um, I'm not convinced by Maitland Niles, but I think it's. I mean, in that position, I think he's a nice looking player, but I don't think left back's where he's going to make his career. No, I think it's really odd that he's decided that Klasnac is going to be taken out of the team for a bit. Maybe it's a preservation thing. You know, maybe he thinks that from a fitness point of view that he's he's not quite up to it just yet. You know, yeah. the first season in England when you've not got a, a winter break and all that can be quite difficult. We'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm reserving judgment on it. I, there's bits that I really like. I mean, you can see he's a finisher. You can see that he has great combination play on the edge of the box and he can get the ball into the box. I think he's actually probably one of the best deliverers of a cross or through ball or, um, mm. you know, down that left side, much better than we've ever had with Gibbs or anything. Um, but there's room definitely. I don't think when a fast player goes against him, he's, he's good. No, he's very, he's, he's got quite a bit to learn one-on-one, even yesterday he was uh, taken to town by, what's his name, Phillips on on the right-hand side. Yeah, I mean, decent player, but, you know, I don't necessarily feel that confident with him in one-on-one situations. I think the other thing, there are a couple of things that stand out for me. I agree with you from an attacking point of view, he's got a lot to offer. I just worry about his reaction times when he gets bypassed. He tends to not react quickly enough in the sense that he, he, he'll often stand and watch what's happening. Um, and I just wonder about his positional awareness as well. Um, but again, I wonder if the switching between formations and everything is, is not really uh, helping anybody in that sense when it comes to who's closing down who or who's meant to be where. I mean, I, we, I did talk to... Um, uh, Lewis Ambrose, who who does the tactics uh, column on Arsblog, but he's a big uh, follower of German football in the Bundesliga. And, and Kolasinac has played a lot of his football at left-back. So this idea that he's not a left-back or can't play at left-back now uh, that was doing the rounds during the week is, is a bit of a falsehood. So I think, again, like you, it's too early really to make any definitive judgment. There's some good things, some bad things, but unless he works very quickly on those bad things, 
I, th- I think we could have a, a bit of a problem with him. Um, and the manager seems a little bit unconvinced at this point, which is a bit unusual for a new signing as well. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought actually what was interesting was when he highlighted why he picked Maitland-Niles and it was for that game against Liverpool <clears throat> when obviously there was a lot of pace on the pitch on Liverpool's side. He'd, he spoke about Maitland-Niles' recovery runs, which basically, I guess, allows to cover you when you've messed up. You've got your position wrong, but you can still get back. Mm. I'm not seeing much in the way of recovery runs from Kalasinac. You know, it kind of feels like when a ball has been threaded inside him and the central defender, that's it. He's out of the play. And um, he's not going to get back like a Bellerin does, for example. Yeah. Um, so you've kind of got a slightly mismatched balance on the wings there. You know, Bellerin who can charge back whenever you want and 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 is a, is, is a great option going forward. But Kalasinac really can't do that. So we'll see. I mean, I... I I think he'll probably end up he'll he'll definitely get used for the rest of the season. I don't see him, you know, we're not in a position where we're dropping him completely, but mm. um there's room for improvement for sure. All right. Uh your question, I think. Uh yes. Okay, so um ooh, let's have a look. Okay, this one's from World of Ollie at World of Ollie, and he says, Is it hard to feel really passionate about what's happening this season when it's just a slightly worse remake of past seasons? Sad. Yeah, I mean, I think what's what's uh, what makes it a bit more difficult for me anyway is the idea that nothing fundamentally is going to change until something really fundamental changes, right? And that's the manager and the coaching staff and, and everything else. And what you used to have, I suppose, when you knew or you were aware or you accepted that Arsene Wenger was going to be the manager, there, was, there wasn't really as much focus on changing the manager. You looked at things like the transfer window as an opportunity to mm. refresh your squad, to move some players on, to bring some players in. There was always that sort of light at the end of the tunnel that maybe we can do something in the transfer window that will make things better, that will you know, uh, improve the team, improve the squad. And what we've seen over the last number of years, for me anyway, is, is a relative uh, windfall being spent on transfers. I know we didn't last summer, but, you know, when you look at what we spent in comparison to what we spent in years before in terms of uh, the money that we spent, the outlay we've had on players, and none of it has really made any difference. So now I look at a transfer window, I look at this month and think, I don't actually care whether we do anything or not, because I'm not convinced that what we do can have any real significant impact. And the same goes for the summer, although when it comes to the summer, I'm a little bit more hopeful because we've got the uh, we've got the new guy and the new scouts and the new recruitment guy and the new not director of football that perhaps we can we can do something there. But I just feel like until the manager changes, the the same flaws and the same issues that this team and these players have are going to exist and it's very difficult to look beyond that I mean so on that sort of similar thread then East Lower asks who are we going to spend 75 million on in a giant show of ambition <laughs> we're not and you're basically like we're not are we we're not going to sign anybody of that value this this January I no mean, the transfer window is now open and we're not being linked really with anyone apart from that mates defender fella potentially but yeah and that's a summer one I think that's one f- yeah. for the summer so you know I don't I don't see anything happening in the in the uh, transfer window, and uh, I, I don't know what the manager can do to change things on the pitch either. You know, I don't. He's tried different formations. He's tried um, different systems. 
the same issues remain, the same defensive frailties remain, the same midfield issues are present. We can't really control games the way we should. We can't attack as well as we would like. Um, you know, and, and I, we have a question here from uh, A. Reese at Andrew J. Reese. He says, can we expect anything different in this transfer window or will the new upstairs team require further betting in? Also, do we need any emergency signings a la Kim Kallstrom, Shim Shellstrom? You know, <laughs> I that's that's kind of what it feels like we might do if we do anything. Well, the, the thing with the weird, I mean, now that he has two very distinct teams, you know, his... Premier League team and those who play in all the other games, it feels like there are options there. But if he's unwilling to use those guys, who would he bring in mm. that he would be willing to use? And if you're just making a kind of like a small purchase, as it were, a kind of emergency, something or other, I just, I just don't see where these players come into the team now because we actually have quite a lot of players. We just have quite a lot of quite average players. Um, I, I see nothing in that reserve. Team. I, you know, I like Elnin. He's a tiny player, but He's not come in and sort of really pushed Xhaka for a starting berth. Coquelin, it feels like, you know, he could easily leave at some point, but for some reason, Wenger still chucks him on as the kind of um, the old illusion at the last two minutes ago. Could be, could be the £100,000 a week, four-year deal he gave him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's I mean that's strange, isn't it? I mean, we've actually got a lot of work to do on the contract front, not just with Urza, Wilshire. And, and Alexis. I mean, there's a whole load of other players who are going to need persuading. And they're yeah. probably looking at this and thinking, you know what, do I want to stay at Arsenal? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, there was a, another quote from World of Ollie here. Um, so World of Ollie, well done, you've got two on. Uh, he, he said, after the obvious two, who is the most pressing and worrying contract concern for you? Ramsey. Yeah, same, same. It's weird how Ramsey suddenly become someone who... I mean, I st- he's still like Marmite for Arsenal fans, but I personally think that he offers something that we just don't have with any other player, which is someone who's willing to to, to get into the box as a midfielder. I mean, he's not at Steven Gerrard levels of racing mm. into the box, but he's he's definitely the best we've got at it from a midfield point of view. And when we play football like we do play football, which is, you know, with, with a bank of 10 defenders against us, you need that. Um, he can be infuriating, Ramsey. You know, his little flicks can be ill-judged. But... We need we need him to sign a new contract. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the if we can't get Ramsey and Wilshire to sign new contracts, then mm. then we're in bad shape. And I think you know if if whatever about like top level players like Ozil and Sanchez, these you know the supposed star players. I don't mean that Ramsey is not a top level player. I think he's a much better player than lots of people give him credit for. Um, but if we can't get those guys to sign new deals, and if we can't secure the future of the club with players like that, then, uh, you know, I don't know what to think about where we are and, and where we're going. Um, so here, here's another question from Dinorana, I think, who's at Dinorana UK. And he wants to know, is selling Theo now actually a bad idea? We have no pace and Iwobi and Welbeck are not offering much with January and February looking very busy. I mean, it depends on what the bid is, really. I mean, if, if someone offers anything over £20 million for Walcott, I'd take that right now. I, I'm, I regardless, of, regardless of, you know, not having that option. I mean, we don't use him anyway. Exactly. That's the thing. We're not using him. I mean, he's, he's, has he, I'm not even sure he started a game in the league this season. No, I mean, he's played. Not- I looked up his minutes and he's played, I think, in total 47 minutes of Premier League football. And he's come on as a sub, I think, in four or five games. That's it. Yeah, I mean, take the money. 
take the money. Thank you very much, Theo. It's been lovely. It hasn't really ever worked out. You feel kind of representative of the last 12 years at the club, unfortunately. And, um, you know, good luck back at Southampton, which yeah. is where I think he, he might end up. Um, and, and you just hope that we reinvest that money in someone better. But, you know, as we've just said, it doesn't feel like we're actually in the market for players at the moment. No, unless they've got some low level fucking shit going on behind the scenes stuff going on. Um, it doesn't look like we're, we're going to do anything. I mean, it sounds, I mean, the most likely scenario is Walcott goes, we take some money and we spend it in the summer or we give Reese Nelson a few games. I, I don't know. I don't know what the, the idea is. I mean, if you're not going to use them and if there's an offer on the table and the money's good and it seems like Southampton are interested in taking him back uh, and Everton, I think, are interested in him as well. Um, you know, too close where you could see he will play a, a, on a more regular basis than he does at Arsenal. Take the money because you're selling something you don't use anyway and you can use that money to to do some business. But it all feels very much up in the air, doesn't it? Well, I, I look at Theo and I think if, if someone is out there and they're willing to offer you, let's say, the same money and the opportunity to play, you'd have to really question why he wouldn't go at this point. I think he would go now. I think he will. Yeah. If the option is there for him to go, I think he will go. I think Arsene Wenger has made it quite clear to him this season, you're not part of my Premier League mm-hmm. plans in any way. A game like yesterday even would have been uh, a perfect game for Theo Walcott to start, simply because if you're looking to freshen your squad and bring in players who haven't played a great deal, he's one of them. You know, he's got mm. nothing in his legs this season, but he still isn't being used, and that tells you everything you need to know. It tell it should tell him everything he needs to know about what his future at Arsenal holds. So mm. I don't think there would be any issue where he go, no, I can't leave. My Arsenal story is not finished yet. Nothing like that. <laughs> He can write another children's book about the rest of his career, I'm sure. Um, Theo on the bench, TJ on the bench. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting if he did go in January and let's say Sanchez leaves. And I've got a feeling that Giroud will go in the summer. I mean, we're suddenly quite threadbare up front. Mm. You know, Lacazette, Welbeck potentially. Um, who again is someone who needs to sign a new contract if we're to keep him, if we think the Welbeck's going to take us to the next level. I mean, we'd, we'd really have to start looking around for, for some strikers and I'm not, I'm not seeing us linked with anybody at the moment. No, no. Um, yeah. I've got a, I've got a question actually from, from, from Facebook. Right. This one, Russ Rattler. And it kind of, I guess it kind of feeds into this to a certain extent is, do you feel like we're being left behind uh, even further now by the money clubs and we're becoming a club in the same tier or level as say Everton or the Spuds. I, I don't think there's any doubt that what we're producing on the pitch is much more that level than Premier League winning level. Um, I, I am slightly encouraged by what's going on behind the scenes uh, and some of the appointments that we've made because, uh, you know, if we were in this position right now and we hadn't appointed a new head of recruitment and we hadn't brought uh, made improvements to the scouting network, if we hadn't uh, appointed a head of football relations, definitely not a director of football, et cetera, et cetera, if we hadn't brought in Darren Burgess to improve the fitness, you know, if we hadn't made moves to... Uh, rejig the academy with Per Mertesacker there and, and he's bringing in some people to work with him I would be a bit more worried but I think the potential is there but again it comes back to how much do the people who are running the club want the club to be successful mm. 
And then there's part of me that thinks, you know, while Wenger is there, everything is going to be done Wenger's way. And that in itself can't bring about too much change. I mean, I, I suppose it's slightly encouraging that he does appear very open to these guys coming in. He's talked about working with uh, Sven Mislintat. Um, he doesn't appear to have, you know, issues. Um, and these these things are going on around him to prepare for life uh, after him in as much as they're there to to support him in the in the final stages of his contract. But do I feel we're getting left behind? You know, I think what we've got is a manager very much at the end of his career. Um, end of day stuff, as you said. I don't think anything transformative or regenerative, regenerative is going to happen with a manager who's been there for 21 years. I don't think that's possible. Mm. So again, it all comes back to, you know, how do we how do we deal with life after Arsene Wenger? How are we going to cope um when he goes, and I think at that point we'll be in a better position to to make a decision on that. What, what do you think? I mean, I, I think it's slightly clouded by the fact that when you look at the league table this season and see Manchester City so far ahead, it kind of feels like everyone's been left behind. And obviously they are the richest club as well. And you kind of take the two together and it feels like, well, you know, maybe we are. Um, I, I, I'm not so worried about being left behind on the money front, as it were, because for the last 15 years, you know, Wenger said it the other day when Mourinho was complaining about, um, you know, not having enough money to compete with Man City that, you know, well, that's always been the case with us. What I'm frustrated by is just, as I said earlier, how boring it is. You know, what you want is to at least go to these games and, 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 and think that the unexpected might happen. And at the moment, everything's very predictable. Um, I'm not so worried about having, you know, spending up, 150 million pounds on a player or something. I just, um, I just want to be entertained. Mm. And at the moment that's not happening. And I know that sounds a bit kind of, you know, there'll be plenty of clubs out there who'd listen to Arsenal fans going, I'm not being entertained, blah, blah, blah. and think we're ridiculous. But you know, you speak to any Arsenal fan and they say it's a bit boring now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, here's one, a couple of uh, ones to finish. Um, Chris Copley on Facebook wants to know, what are your opinions on video review and do incidents like yesterday change how you feel about it? So the suggestion that the video assisted referees um, might have uh, overruled, for example, that decision by Mike Dean. I mean, I'm at this point, I think it's an inevitability that this is going to come in. The game, there's too much money in the game now for decisions like yesterday's to, to affect the outcome of, of league championships and, and all sorts of things. I, I, I think it's a good thing. I'm just going to be really curious to see how they use it because on the odd occasion when I watch rugby, it feels like pretty much every decision uh, or every, every try that's scored or something, they end up going to the video referee just to check it anyway. Mm. And I'm not sure football fans are going to particularly enjoy the element of doubt that comes into say celebrating a goal because when you watch football and the ball goes in the back of the net and you go absolutely mental the last thing you want to do is to kill that moment because everybody has to turn to a tv screen to see whether or not it's been allowed <sighs> the joy of football is that kind of you know it's in the moment and you know what the decision is and it's happened um 
at the same time, I think over the course, I mean, we football is all about debate, right? Everybody loves the back and forth and the banter and the kind of the going round and round and talking about the decisions and the rest of it. It'll be interesting if that element of the game is taken out, if the doubt is taken out of everything. But I think there's enough doubt in football, even when you have video referees, it's going to be dis- difficult with some decisions. So I think that side of things will still be taken care of. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I mean, Wenger's obviously for it. He's been banging on about it for a long time. And if, if human beings can't do it, then let's hope the robots can. Mm. Yeah, I'm sort of in two minds. In some ways, I think, yes, you've got to embrace technology to try and make the game better. But I don't think you want to do too much damage to the game either in terms of the flow of it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we talk about that, but the ball spends an awful lot of time out of play anyway. You know, mm. in, a, in a game, the ball isn't in play for, I don't know, half an hour, maybe more. I don't know. But uh, yeah, you worry. I worry about that. I, I know I've um, had a few emails recently and a few messages from people, which I apologize. I haven't had a chance to uh, to get around to answering yet about the implementation of video assistant referees in in Australia. The, the A-League there, I think. Uh, mm. Is it the A-League? Um, yeah. Whatever the league is called. But And it hasn't worked out, or people aren't very happy with the way it's worked out. I wonder, though, could you have a system whereby you could cite, um, you have a challenge, for example, as a manager, you can pick um, you can pick a moment in which you can contest a decision, and that decision then gets I mean, I uh, think addressed. that's the way to go, because you look at cricket and you look at tennis, and you, you, you put all of the emphasis on the players. And you say, well, okay, you have this opportunity, use it wisely, but it's up to you to say when you want to use it. And I think that could bring in a kind of interesting aspect to the game. Mm. Um, if it all comes down to just referees and correcting decisions on the pitch, it could, you know, that might be fine on one level, but I, I just don't think it makes it very interesting. But I think putting the emphasis on the players making the decision, that's 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 the future. Mm. Um, so we've got uh, one quick one here from Beardy McBeardface, which is at Bearded Hannon. <laughs> What did you make of the red, red, red kit combo, which we uh, which we wore yesterday? I thought it was odd. It was strange. It didn't really look like Arsenal to me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure I, I liked it that much. I, you know, something that's new and different is always, oh, look at that. That's, that's new and different for 20 seconds. And then it was like, no, nah, I'm not sure I really like this. <laughs> I remember a game a, a while back, could have been a European game, was it? And I've, I think I've got a memory of Aaron Ramsey scoring a goal in the game, where we yeah, played we, with we, blue shorts. Yeah, we played a, we played uh, one of the Turkish teams in the Champions League, and we actually I think we won five two or something that night. Yeah, it was uh, red shirts and blue shorts. It may have been around about 2013, 2014 or something. Mm. That looked weird as well. That yeah. was really odd. What did you think of the red shorts? I mean. I thought they looked smart and it was different and it, it, it was probably the most exciting thing. That gave me a reason to watch yesterday. Um, but yeah, no, a bit odd. What I didn't understand is I, I, I'm sure we played in red and white kits at uh, the Hawthorns before. I didn't understand why we particularly needed to go with the white short, oh, sorry, the red shorts yesterday instead of the white Could ones. we not just have worn the away kit? Probably. The, the, uh, I mean, it just the light it felt blue like one. We, you know, meddling for the sake of meddling. Yeah, I didn't really understand the decision there. I know they wore white shorts, but we could have worn our away kit, which is blue. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't really get it. Uh, final question today also comes from Beardy MacBeardface. This is uh, unprecedented. Two people getting two questions. But he asks this. This is one that will get you thinking. 
You can go back in time and change one of the following. Which is it? A, Bergkamp's missed penalty in the 99 FA Cup semi-final against Manchester United. B, Wayne Bridges' goal in the uh, Champions League in 2004 at Highbury. C, Lehman's red card in the uh, 2006 Champions League final. D, Gail Clichy conceding a penalty versus Birmingham in 08. Jesus, what a way to start 2018. Yeah. All those horrible memories. All those horrible memories. Um, okay. So I was, yeah. Mm, it's not easy, Weirdly, is it? Do you know what? The, the, the game where I was most upset out of all of them, and it's really odd because it was the least significant, was the Birmingham game. That day, when Cleese conceded that penalty, everything that had gone before it with the Eduardo challenge there was just something about that game. And I knew even though we were still top of the league after that game, that that was it. Like that Mm. was the day that we squandered the opportunity to win the title. And it, I was furious, like in a way that I've not been since, and I'm not sure I was before. Um, So that was the most painful. The other ones, I mean, you know, Burkamp missing a penalty. We could have still won that game anyway. Wayne Bridge, obviously really frustrating. We've been over that many times talking about the Invincibles and how they should have won the Champions League that year. Lehman, I'm, I'm not so fussed about the Champions League final. I thought it was amazing that we got there and we weren't the best team in Europe that year, but we you know, we, we gave a good account of ourselves. I'm going to go with Clichy. Right. Right. I know. Weird, eh? Yeah, no, not weird. I can understand. I think the, the, the effects of that game were seismic and the effects of that goal, you know, you think of the Gallus tantrum and what might have been um, that season, that that team should have won the league. Um, I mean, I'm I looking mean, at just, the, With yeah. that team, it felt like we could, we could draw a line under the Henri, Vieira, Perez team and start afresh. And I thought it was the opportunity to create a new Arsenal era. And instead what we got was brittle Arsenal and yeah. it became a kind of narrative which continued for five, six years and then effectively has been rebranded the banter era. You yeah, know? self-perpetuating um, in a way, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at them, you know, the red card in the Champions League final, there's no guarantee that you go on and win the game anyway. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that one's ruled out. The one that hurt me the most was the Wayne Bridge goal. It still makes my fucking... Oh, yeah, it still hurts me, and I think the the effects of that were you know we could have we could have gone on and won the Champions League that season. I think we would have gone on and won won the Champions League that season with that team. Um, yeah, it would have it would have dented the rise of Mourinho as well, obviously because of um, because of what he did oh, that see, year. That's a, good, that's a very good that's a good reason that one. Yeah, the other one I'm so, so I'm torn between that one and the Bergkamp miss penalty because what that what that does is it denies Manchester United a treble, a treble. that they never yeah. fucking stop going on about. I don't think it would have had a huge effect on us in the league that season because after that game, after we lost, we won our next four league games um we won 5-1 against Wimbledon 6-1 against Middlesbrough 1-0 against Derby we beat Spurs 3-1 at White Hart Lane so it didn't have an effect of course the next game was that Leeds game the Nelson Vivas mistake mm. yeah, yeah but yeah. what what tears me about this one over the 0-4 one is the effect that it had on Dennis Bergkamp I think it really mm. had a big effect on Dennis for a season or two. I don't think he was the same after missing that penalty. He never took another well, penalty he, again. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, I remember him when he joined the club, he'd always spoken about watching the FA Cup as a child and it was always his ambition to play in an FA Cup final and he missed the 97-98 double yeah. uh, FA Cup final against Newcastle. And you're right, I mean, it obviously had a massive psychological effect on him. I mean, yeah. to choose to never take a penalty again after that is, is, is an unusual decision by someone who is so esteemed in the world of football. Yeah, yeah. So... It's difficult, but I think I'm going to go with the, like a, two more years of Dennis being brilliant. Would it have had an effect on us in, in 2000, 2001, where we didn't really come close to winning the title in those years? Um, or 04. I'm going to go for 04. I, want I think us, that's fair. I want yeah. us to go through uh, in the Champions League and and uh, and do what we needed to do in the in the in the next rounds of that. Um, I think that would have been a, a significant a significant thing for the club at that time as well. You know, for that team to go on and win the title that year and also win the Champions League, would it have had a a, a knock on effect in terms of how the next few years would have gone? I think it would have. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go with that one. So there you go. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, look, it's New Year's Day. You probably have some uh, some drinks to drink to make yourself feel better. Um, everybody else, I think they've got some drinks to drink too. Having put them through that, though, that mm-hmm. trip down Trauma Lane, uh, a cheery way to begin the new year. But there you go. Um, so, look, uh, Andrew, thank you for standing in for James. Um, oh, appreciate my pleasure. It. I hope James is having a lovely time wherever he is. I'm sure he is. Did you see his picture on Instagram? I haven't. I- We'll check now. Okay. Uh, he's, he's, what's, he, um, what's, what's, what's he done? He's posted a picture of himself and his wife on the plane, and he's got a baseball cap on with the words got enough, hashtag got enough on the baseball cap, and her face oh. is a picture. <laughs> So if if, oh. if if he spends the next month going around India and Sri Lanka going around asking her if she's got enough this or that, uh, we may need to make this a permanent thing because I'm not sure he's coming back alive. Uh, but I do hope he's uh, he's having a good time. Um, I've just looked at the picture. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He has, uh, good luck, James. Yeah, good luck there. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening to the first Arscast Extra of 2018. We will have other guest hosts throughout the month, and we will have an Arscast on Friday uh, after the Chelsea game and looking ahead to our FA Cup uh, tie with Nottingham Forest on Sunday. So join us for that. Uh, In the meantime, take it easy. Cheers. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.